0: Hello and welcome to MedTalk, my name is Sneha. I'm a third year medical student at University of Western Australia. Today's episode is on hyperkalemia and is the second part of our two-part series on potassium imbalances with Professor Neil Boudville who is a consultant nephrologist and Professor of Clinical Medicine at University of Western Australia. If you want to refresh your physiology and get a bit of a background, uh, we suggest you listen to the hypokalemia episode first. You can find it on our website as well as the episode transcript to go with it. Uh, Without further ado, here's hyperkalemia. Professor Beauville, thank you so much for joining us for our second part on potassium disorders. This time we're going to talk about hyperkalemia. We'll start with a case history as usual. So today we've got a patient who is a 54-year-old Indigenous man from Geraldton who's been referred to because of hyperkalemia. He has long-standing type 2 diabetes mellitus that's been poorly controlled. He also has a chronic kidney disease with creatinine of 220 micromoles per litre, which is an EGFR of 28 millilitres per minute. His potassium is 5.8 millimoles per litre and he's asymptomatic. So I was wondering if you could, again, take us through your clinical reasoning process as you listen to that history and what your thought processes are.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. I I don't know if anyone's going to be here for the second one after that complicated (laughs) first part, but uh, for those who are listening, thank you. Um, so, once again, it goes back to understanding potassium balance. So, it is crucial that you understand that most of the potassium in our body is intracellular, fi- mm-hmm. over 50 times is intracellular versus extracellular. And that the amount of potassium in your body is a balance between what goes in or what you take in, th- primarily through oral intake, and what leaves um, primarily through your kidneys. Uh, in the case of hyperkalemia, or not leaving via your your kidneys. So with all of that in mind, if I think about the causes of hyperkalemia, I think about cell shift, and Mm -hmm. I think about um, uh, all those acidotic uh, states that lead potassium to leave the cells into the extracellular space. The classic would be diabetic ketoacidosis. And I think about uh, medications um, affecting cell shift, and the most common would be beta blockers. Though, to be honest, I think the effect may be a little bit Um, over-exaggerated. So I wouldn't have thought it would be a major, more more common cause of uh, potassium, certainly not potassium of this this level. Um, And then I think about intake. Uh, And uh, oral intake uh, is important, um, for hypokalemia, uh, it's important uh, as a contributor. It's beyond common if everything else is working well to be the sole driver of high potassium, but it would be a common um, exacerbator of other, some other secondary cause uh, and uh, it, it is crucial for the management of hyperkalemia as well. And then I think about, uh, oh, going back to cell shift, sorry, I also meant to, se- meant to say the other way that uh, potassium can leave the cells as well if there's cell destruction. So uh, if there is um, hemolysis, if there is rhabdomyolysis, severe burns uh, will also cause um, hyperkalemia. And then with the kidneys, the kidneys uh, can cause hyperkalemia through kidney failure, uh, for example, uh, or through um, medications. Um, and, and if there's a few other causes but the medications that, that, cl- that classically or most commonly will be associated with hyperkalemia would be your ACE inhibitors and angiotensin 2 receptor blockers um, in fact those drugs when you start those medications you really need to check their potassium and their creatinine uh, soon after commencing those drugs to, to make sure they haven't got, got this side effect um, in addition uh, anti, uh, anti-inflammatories non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can cause hyperkalemia as well through its effect on the uh, um, blood supply of the kidneys. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of things that that I would be thinking about when I, uh, broadly when I see someone who's got high potassium. In in this case here, um, the uh, 54 indigenous man uh was actually a patient of mine that I saw uh, two weeks ago. Really? Uh, which is why uh, I thought it would be good to, to, to mm-hmm. discuss because it's, it's a real patient. Yep. Um, and so obviously the, ki- the kidney failure w- would make you think, oh, this must be the driver of the high potassium. But in fact, uh, high potassium from kidney failure is a very late manifestation. Your kidneys have an amazing ability to keep excreting potassium, even down to a very, very low EGFR. And so... It's surprising that there's high potassium at an EGFR of 28. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, it'll be much lower, um, 10, 5, 2. So, this is quite this is unusual for kidney failure by itself. But it's very common in type 2 diabetics. Mm-hmm. So, it's the classic CKD cases uh, that have hyperkalemia early on are type 2 diabetics. For, for a couple of reasons. The main reasons would be one of the uh, main interventions t- to protect chronic kidney disease in people with type 2 diabetes are ACE inhibitors and anti-tensor 2 receptor blockers. So there's a high utilisation of these medications in these patients and and mm-hmm. this can uh, exacerbate the hyperkalemia. Sure. On top of that, um, patients with type 2 diabetes uh, are predisposed to type 4 renal tubular acidosis i say that with <laughs> he, some hesitation because i know you guys love acid base so much but it, it is associated with type 4 renal tubular acidosis type 4 renal tubular acidosis is metabolic acidosis but unusual in that it's associated with high potassium most renal tubular acidosis is associated with low potassium right. but that renal tubular acidosis is associated with high potassium and the mechanism behind that is uh Hypoaldosteronism, so low right. renin, low aldosterone, so you don't have that mineral corticoid activity, you don't have that aldosterone activity in your distal convoluted tubule, and so you're not um, excreting the potassium because mm-hmm. that's what that that receptor does in your distal convoluted tubule. So you you, you make, you're keeping your potassium in your body. Um, this is important to know because when we talk about the treatments, these, mm-hmm. these are these are the, the kind of things you have to think about. So. Yeah, in this case here, type, type 2 diabetic with chronic kidney disease and hypokalemia, I often think about type 4 acidosis. I, I wouldn't be surprised if this person's serum bicarbonate is either the low range of normal or just be no, below normal, mm-hmm. like 20, 21, 19 millimoles per litre, just below the normal range. Um, and, uh, and and maybe it's revealed by, uh, as well by the addition of an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin 2 receptor blocker.
0: Thank you for that. That's a very thorough and useful framework to know. I was wondering if you could uh, break it down as to what you would expect students to pick up on. Are things like renal tubular acidosis, are they conditions we should be aware of in detail?
1: So um, I think you need to be aware that it exists. I think that, uh, you know, unfortunately, all, do- all doctors struggle with renal tubal acidosis unless they see, uh, see it on a regular basis and think about it on a regular basis. So, um, so no, I don't think you need to know about it. I, you know, I think that um, at a superficial level, you can manage high potassium without understanding the reasons behind it um, sure. so well. The key would be um, knowing the medications that can cause it to go, go up. Mm-hmm. And the key, um, I think, for common medications would be ACE inhibitors and to two receptor blockers, and maybe spironolactone, and some of the other potassium sparing diuretics. So they will be the key ones, as far as drugs are concerned. Um, beta blockers, I don't think. Well, you can think about that, but they're often they're on it for a reason. Um, and anti anti inflammatories, I don't think, are a common driver because people aren't, tend not to be on it on a regular basis enough to mm-hmm. cause this. So I think students need to know about the medications and then they need to understand um, how to treat it. Um, sure. And you can, you can understand that at a very a simple level, mm-hmm. um, which works perfectly fine, perfectly safe for the patient and, and, and get by just fine and without needing to any deeper of an understanding like the one I've described.
0: Sure. Our patient today, in this case, is asymptomatic. Is that quite a common presentation for hyperkalemia?
1: Yeah, often patients are completely asymptomatic uh, um, uh, until they have a significant cardiac arrhythmia, uh, unfortunately, so um, Mm. that's the the other thing, is that if you have a patient with hyperkalemia, you you do need to have a a plan as to how you're gonna manage their potassium, monitoring their potassium further on, because you can't rely on the symptoms.
0: I was wondering if you could take us through what else would be useful to know about why this patient is hyperkalemic? Uh,
1: it would be the diet will be the okay. other key thing. Sure. So um, what is their dietary potassium intake? Um, and because that will be a key component to the management of this patient, patient's potassium longer term.
0: Sure. So detailed medical medication history and diet. Yes. Sure. In terms of management, what are the general management principles and how would you treat someone with hyperkalemia?
1: So hyperkalemia, you really need to make a decision about whether or not you're going to treat this acutely, sure. uh, urgently, um, and um, alternatively uh, and longer term, what, what is the ongoing management of hyperkalemia. As far as the acute management, it's, it is an acute emergency. Uh, so it, it is the decisions... Um, it ba- is based primarily on ecg changes mm-hmm. i think and rate of change of potassium and um what the likelihood is of the p- patient removing potassium via the kidneys in the future so ecg changes so you do an ecg and if you've got the classic ecgs widening qrs for example that would be a real driver to want to acutely get this patient's potassium down and keep them safe Rate of rise, so if their potassium on serial testing over a short period of time is going up and up and up and up, you probably want to treat it earlier rather than wait for it to get super high and wait for an ECG change to occur. Um, And removal of potassium, if the patient has got kidney failure and they're oligoaneuric, they're unlikely to be removing potassium because that's the main way your body gets rid of potassium. So you may want to treat them a bit earlier as well. Um, as far as the treatment acutely is concerned, um, mm-hmm. if you want me to go through that, um, if you think about what, what your options are, um, we can kind of prioritize our treatment. So, the options would be uh, insulin. Mm-hmm. And so, typically, you'd give uh, 10 units of insulin and uh, 50 mils 50% dextrose. You can expect that to lower your potassium by about one millimole per litre, and typically it takes one hour to work. You can also give salbutamol nebulizers. and the trick for salbutamol nebulizers is that it needs to be twice the dose that you would give for asthma. Mm-hmm. And that you, you can expect that to lower your potassium by about one millimole per litre, and it typically takes about one hour. Then you could give um, uh, um, some uh, resin to mm-hmm. the patient, so, so misonium for, would be the most common one that we use in Australia. Uh, and that can be given rectally if you don't like the patients. That typically uh, w- works very well, typically takes about four hours to work. Yep. You can give it to a patient orally, takes about mm-hmm. 24 to 48 hours to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's some newer resins that are getting on the market. Uh, one of them is available that uh, work in a different way to Resonium, a bit, bit better tolerated. So that, mm-hmm. that space may change, um, and we may be relying on the resins. The resins work via the gut, instead of um, uh, your kidneys. You could give them Lasix mm-hmm. uh, to, to drive the urine um, production and potassium excretion. Uh, that takes a few hours to work. Or you can dialyze them. If you're, you're a kidney specialist like me, I could dialyze them, but right. then I have to put a central line in them. I have to convince the nurse to do the dialysis and mm-hmm. you have to wheel them up there. So that typically takes an hour or two. So I'm kind of p- painting these time courses to, mm-hmm. to give you a suggestion that um, all of these things take time to work. And so the crucial thing for treating a hyperkalemia, if you think they need to be treated acutely to prevent arrhythmias, then um, you need to give them calcium intravenously because mm-hmm. the calcium just takes one circulation of their blood to work. So it usually takes one or two minutes to work and stabilize their myocardium and to re- significantly reduce their risk of arrhythmias. So that's the key um, part of hyperkalemia treatment is the calcium
0: sure and just to clarify with the insulin you'd give that to non-diabetic patients yes. as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. Okay. there's an insulin receptor on cells that causes shift of potassium yep.
0: Yeah. sure and are there any ecg changes that we should be aware of or is ecg something you would do urgently yeah. in a patient with hyperkalemia uh,
1: if it was if it was a high um I, I suppose I, I see hyperkalemia a lot so i tend to be a lot more tolerant of how high is high yeah. um, but the issue change would be typically a widening crs um, tenting of your t waves widespread um, and then that leads to torsades um, which is your sort of life-threatening arrhythmia that you get sure. well the other uh, aspect of treatment of hypokalemia i suppose would be the more chronic uh, treatment and mm-hmm. uh, this this patient here wouldn't have needed any acute treatment i would i wouldn't have done any acute treatment so it'd be mm-hmm. more the chronic treatment of hypokalemia that i would be um, thinking about okay. and the chronic treatment of hypokalemia the key is intake mm-hmm. so ideally it would be great to not give uh, patients medications and just get it down by limiting their their oil intake so it's good dietary advice Um, unfortunately a lot of the high potassium foods tend to be the the good ones that are healthy and good for you Mm -hmm. Um, the classic would be bananas but also avocados and citrus fruits Um, And then if if they've got a good dietary history or they're non-compliant and they're, they're getting as good as they can get then you need to remove the potassium ideally via your kidneys mm-hmm. uh, I, I would not tend to remove via your gut long term they'll be using risonium because it's it's expensive for the patients and not real or tolerate these newer resins coming in that might be available might change that right. but they're not subsidized by the government as yet so we're still related we're still left with uh, renal excretion of potassium so with renal excretion potassium it goes down to Bloody physiology again. <laughs> it's really just Lasix yeah. or activate your aldosterone, activate your mineral corticoid um, axis. And the only drug that we have is fludrocortisone. Fludrocortisone. Right. Fludrocortisone is just aldosterone. Okay. So the two ways you can increase renal excretion of potassium is Lasix or fludrocortisone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I think about it, it is Lasix will tend to reduce someone's intravascular volume. Fludrocortisone acts like a mineral corticoid, so it causes sodium reabsorption and potassium excretion. Mm-hmm. So fludrocortisone tends to increase someone's um, intravascular volume or their volume status, right? right? So, yeah. so if I see someone who is overloaded, I would tend to give Lasix. Mm-hmm. If I see someone who's undervolumed, I would tend to give fludrocortisone. Um, having said that, we everyone's familiar with you prescribing Lasix. Mm-hmm. D- to be honest. Most people will give Lasix, even to the people who are intravascular depleted, maybe just get them to drink a bit more and that's fine, that works just fine. But um, I'm kind of describing how I think about about this and and I guess I see the more complicated patients. So going back to your answer about, um, your question about uh, what do I expect students to know? I expect students to know To recognise hyperkalemia, Mm -hmm. to know about uh, uh, the risk of arrhythmia and how to to decide who to treat acutely Mm -hmm. and what the ECG changes are. And I would expect them to know how to get the potassium down acutely. Um, So I would expect them to know about insulin and um, about about, um, salbutamol. Uh, and then I would, I would hope that they would chronically know about uh, diet education, and about Lasix, the fludrocortisone. I'm not too worried about mm-hmm. it for the student, but Lasix that will, they can get by with Lasix. Yeah. Sure.
0: Any other take-home points before we finish potassium?
1: It's all about the physiology, okay. and unfortunately, that's unfortunately, the I keep I keep saying this about everything. It's all about the physiology and basic right. understanding. Yeah, for yeah. for all of what we do as med- in clinical medicine. Sure.
0: Well, Professor Budeville, thank you so much for demystifying potassium for us. Um, I certainly learnt a lot from those two episodes. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks a lot. See ya.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can find this episode as well as all our other episodes and their transcripts on our website, www.medtalkpod.com. You can also like us on Facebook, www.facebook.com forward slash MedTalkPod to stay updated about all the new episodes and any new learning resources. You can also send us episode ideas and feedback on our website or our email medtalkpod at outlook.com.